Have you ever done an evaluation on your financial fitness? Like the worst introduction. Just stick with me. I know. And I'm not even going to talk that much about money, so don't worry today. That's not really the point of this. Um, But a number of years ago, my wife and I, you know, we were kind of getting started. And um, we got to this point as we were just kind of figuring out our lives and our goals and our future, where we stopped and said, hey, we probably need to have some kind of a financial plan for our future and, and to be able to fund some of those things. And maybe it'd be a good idea if we actually talked to someone who knows what they're talking about when it comes to money. And I know some of you here, you're so into those kind of things. You love it. Maybe you are those people that other people come and talk to. Uh, for others, maybe even those questions well up a little bit of anxiety. You don't want to talk about money. You don't want to talk about the budget. All those things kind of scare you, or you just rather kind of put things on autopilot. Um, But if you go into a financial advisor or an accountant or something like that, and you say, hey, we're looking to get some kind of a plan together, which they will probably love because that's what they do, they'll probably run you through uh, some evaluations, evaluations of where you're at, what your risk tolerance is for investments, what your goals are in the future. So they might ask you questions like, you know, what's happening in your career? Are you satisfied with your income? Do you see your income changing in any big way in the the coming months or years? Uh, What are some of your long-term financial goals and how do you see yourself moving towards them? Do you have an emergency fund if something happens? Do you have some cash that you can get to right away? Do you have a plan to pay off your debts if you have a bunch of debt? Uh, What about your approach to investments? Or what are your dreams for retirement and how do you think you can fund them? Do you have savings goals? And then they might start talking about things like RRSPs and RESPs and TFSAs and all sorts of things. And there's a whole bunch of different versions of financial planning. Some can be very simple. Some can get pretty sophisticated depending on where you're at and what your needs are. And if I ask you today some of those questions, again, some of us, some of you, you might go, I've got a lockdown plan, I've got an advisor, and we're very consistent. Others of us, we might go, whoa, I'm kind of anxious about that. I don't know what to do about that. Um, Maybe it conjures up some of that anxiety, and we're not really sure. One thing that a financial advisor might do when they ask you all those questions, and maybe you're not sure of what to do with your money and how to invest. Now, there's a bunch of different ways you can invest your money or save for the future or whatever. But one of them that's fairly common that an an advisor might tell you is they might bring out like the compound interest chart. Have you ever seen those? And if you're not saving for your future already, they might say, hey, this is probably important for you to know that if you make some good investments in some stocks or mutual funds, whatever, um, you know, every time you get a paycheck, maybe take a percentage and make sure you're saving for your future and you're investing well. And they might say to you something like, and if you do just a little bit at a time, but you do it consistently, it might not seem like a lot at the beginning. You might seem like, oh, it's just a little bit and every month a little bit goes in, a little bit goes in. And you might look at your accounts and go, oh, it's a little bit more and a little bit more, but, but you, know, you don't see this like, huge explosion until you give it some time. And they'll tell you and show you these charts that if you invest your money and you get such and such a percent, then, you know, this month you put in a little bit of money. Next month you get interest on the money you put in and you have a little bit more. And then the next month after that, you get interest on the money you put in, plus the more money that you put in, plus interest on the interest. And if you kind of do the math, again, for the first little while, it might not seem crazy, but if you do this for 25, 30, 35, 40 years, all of a sudden in those last years, you're seeing the interest making such a huge growth because it's your interest on your interest on your interest, and it's compounding. Actually, that you have more money um, in interest that's grown, far more money than actually what you've invested, what you've put in. And an advisor will tell you, that's why you just need a plan 
and you need to stick with it. And maybe you need someone like an advisor to make sure you don't make rash decisions or pull your money out at the wrong time, but stay the course and one day uh, to reap the rewards. And it's important to have a financial plan. And even if you don't like that kind of stuff, and even if it makes you feel uh, anxious or frustrated or whatever, it's really good to go through that process. Today, I don't want to talk so much about uh, financial fitness, but I do want to ask you about your relational fitness. Because I'm not sure where you would go or how many places you would go to ask some of the same types of questions in terms of, do you have a relational plan for your life? Have you thought about some of the relational investments that perhaps um, you might want to make, should make? And I'm actually wondering if that whole idea of compound interest that happens in the financial world, maybe it happens in the relational world as well. So today I kind of want to look at that. Some of the questions that we might ask about our money might be a little bit different when we talk about the relationships that we have. I think they're so important. Like what if I asked you, are you satisfied with the number of close friends that you have in your life? I got some good ones, somebody says. That's beautiful. And I don't think there's a number. I don't think it has to be one or three or five. But are you satisfied with the close relationships that you have in your life? How many family members do you have that you feel really close to? Are you satisfied with that? Do you have any plan for the future of how those relationships will go? How many people do you think you could call on in the middle of the night for help if there was a crisis? Do you have a plan to invest in good, life-giving relationships. And today what I want to ask is, are there habits that are helpful or helping us build strong relationships for the future? Because as important as it is to have a financial plan for the future, I think it's even more important to have a friendship plan for the future. There's a study, this is why, there's a study that goes back to 1937. So a very long, one of the longest studies that's going, I think it came out of Harvard, and uh, what this group did way back then is they wanted to figure out what are the predictors or the elements in life that lead to a flourishing life. People who say, I feel really fulfilled, I have a meaningful existence, uh, all those kinds of things. What are the common denominators in people's lives that would help us predict if this is true in your life, then you'll probably have an experience uh, of a deeper and more meaningful life. And so what they did is they gathered a whole bunch of people. They started with 720, or I think now it's up to 724 participants. It's still going. But they grabbed people from all different walks of life. They had one group that was from more affluent families, so family with money, uh, maybe family that had uh, high education levels and lots of opportunities, those kind of things. And then they had another group of people um, that that didn't have those same advantages, the same money or opportunities in their families. And they started following them around. And their idea was, we're going to follow these people through their entire lives. And we're going to try and study as many different elements in their life as we can. And so they started with some of those things, looking at like family history um, and and opportunities that they have and work. And as they got older, their education, uh, as uh, technology grew, they started adding DNA testing and different health things, brain scans, all kinds of stuff, and tried to study every aspect that they could possibly study in somebody's life to figure out what leads to the, the flourishing life. And of course, there's a number of things and a number of things they found. But what they've been finding for all of these years and continue to find is that strong relationships make for a flourishing life more than pretty much any other factor. That people who had strong, deep relationships, friendships, that they're walking through life with people who are there for them, and vice versa, was the strongest predictor of whether or not people felt like they were living a flourishing life. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I think we should not be surprised by that. 
After all, isn't that kind of at the core of what Jesus taught, that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our mind, all our strength, and we should love others as ourselves? That at the very core of who we are, we are relational beings in that, that as we live out the life that God has created us to live, our relationships are an integral part of that. So can we talk about that this morning and maybe do just a little bit of a relational uh, fitness test and see where we're at and just ask, could there be perhaps uh, one or two habits that might help us to build strong relationships? There's this parable in Luke chapter 16 that I actually love. I'd love to read for you and to work through it. Uh, Jesus had been teaching the Pharisees, and oftentimes there's a lot of frustration between Jesus and the Pharisees, not always because they're miles apart in their theology, but they often uh, are not in the same place in terms of how they live out their theology. And so Jesus is telling them these stories, and actually we read in the first line, Luke chapter 16, verse 1, that Jesus told this story to his disciples. It's a bit of a shift in the book of Luke, where Jesus has been teaching the Pharisees, and there's frustration, and there's tension. And it's almost like in this parable, he calls his disciples to him. And, uh, you know, they've been in all these theological debates and, and opposition from other religious leaders. And now Jesus kind of pulls his disciples together. And I think sort of what he's doing in this story is saying, Listen, out there in the world, there's all kinds of things going on. We need to be an alternative to some of the negative things that are happening. We need to show and live out and practice a different way when it comes to our relationships and in a way that is, is going to shock some people. So this is the story he tells. He says, there was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. One day a report came that the manager was wasting his employer's money. So the employer called him in and said, what's this I hear about you? Get your report in order because you're going to be fired. He gives him a little bit of warning, which is good. Uh, we have here a rich man, uh, a businessman, somebody who's got lots of affairs uh, in the business world that is happening. He's hired a manager, which wasn't super uncommon. This would have been the person who would have had authority to go and do business uh, on behalf of his boss. And he would have negotiated deals. He would have, in some ways, it sounds like in this parable, been a bit of the salesperson. He would have dealt with accounts. And he would have had authority to make deals. He would have had authority uh, to, to give people deals, those kind of things. That's what he does. But his employer uh, realizes, we don't know how, and we actually don't know the specifics, except that he says he's wasting his employer's money, and the boss finds out about it. We don't know how the boss finds out about it. And we don't know how he's wasting his employer's money. Could be that he's lazy. Maybe he's not trying that hard. He's not bringing in enough revenue. Maybe he's, and a lot of interpreters think uh, that the natural assumption is he's probably skimming off the top. Maybe he's stealing from his boss. But one way or another, his boss gets word that um, it's not going well. He's not doing good with his. He's wasting his money, and he's going to fire him. So he hasn't quite fired him yet, but it's coming. So get your stuff together because I'm about to fire you. So verse 3 says, the manager thought to himself. He's been given some warning. He now knows he's in a crisis position with his job. He thinks to himself, now what? My boss has fired me, is about to fire me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches, and I'm too proud to beg. Ah, I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who give me a home when I'm fired. So our manager here, he realizes the moment. He realizes, I am about to be out of the wealth building business. I need to get in the friend building business. I'm about to lose my job, I'm gonna lose my paycheck, that's going to put me into a crisis. I got to still make things sure that things are going and paid for. Uh, I got to provide for myself. Maybe he's got a family. Who knows? I need to get out of the wealth building. I mean, I'm getting out of the wealth building business. I'm getting fired. I need to get into the relationship building 
business. I need to have some friends to give me a home when I'm fired. That's an interesting thing to think. He doesn't think, I need a whole bunch of more money. I need to stockpile. I need to check my emergency fund. I need to see how my investments are doing. He says, I need some friends who will bring me into their home when I'm fired. Verse 5. So he invited each person who owed to his employer to come and discuss the situation. He asked the first one, how much do you owe him? The man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, take the bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. And how much do you owe my employer? He asked the next man. I owe him 1,000 bushels of wheat, was the reply. Here, the manager said, take the bill and change it to 800 bushels. So remember, a manager in this situation very likely would have had authority to do these things, is to be in the purview of his job, is to be able to make deals and do negotiations and things like that. The numbers that we have in terms of the olive oil and the wheat are really, really big. So he takes 800 gallons and he says, make it 400. So write down your bill is 400. The bills for these kinds of deals were done in the handwriting of the one who was buying something or borrowing something. And it was sort of like their signature. It was in your handwriting. So you know, you made that deal. You're the one that wrote it out and you've got to stick to it. So he says, take 800 gallons of olive oil, which is a ton of olive oil. So what we know is this is not um, a family. This is not a family being like, oh, I'm going grocery shopping. I need some olive oil. It's not even a a family farm. A family farm that would have been um, much, much smaller than this. This is like a yield that would have been a huge amount from from a, a huge farm and it's probably, um, it's probably that whoever owes this, they're renting the fields, the, the olive orchards, whatever it is, from this guy's boss, and this is the payment for it. And it's a ton, and the guy says, basically, cut it in half, 400 gallons, and then it's similar with the wheat, 1,000 bushels of wheat that you owe. This would have been a yield that could have come from like a 200-acre farm, maybe. It, it's a big amount. These are business deals, not just little family deals. It's, it's big. To put it in context of what kind of money would that be in our terms, if you kind of do the math, and they're different percentages, uh, but interpreters have looked at it and said, if you take that much wheat and that much olive oil, um, it's probably in the same ballpark of what amount of money that would be. And it might be around, in this case, 500 denarii. So one denarii was maybe uh, a laborer's daily wage. So 500 would be more than a year uh, of a a daily wage. So what we're talking about here for each of these deals is tens of thousands of dollars in the way that we would think about it. So it's not small amounts. These are pretty big amounts where people would have said, wow, you're lowering my bill by tens of thousands of dollars. They would have been absolutely thrilled by this. They would have thought, wow, this is a sales guy, and he cares for what I'm doing. He's convinced his boss, they would have assumed, convinced his boss to be so generous to cut what I owe in such a huge way. This is astronomical savings. So verse 8 says, the rich man, this is so good, the rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. He just lost him tens of thousands of dollars for nothing. And he goes, what a rascal. I love that translation. Dishonest little rascal out there making deals. And it's true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of light. The children of this world, so those who just simply see the world as it is materially, those who maybe go out and are making business deals and just see the world flat versus the children of light who are those who see the world in light of who God is. And here is part of the lesson. We'll get to the rest of it in a second. But um, there are people, you look at this guy, you say, man, he was dishonest. He was a rascal, but he was shrewd. He was really smart. 
He saw there was a crisis. He saw that his paycheck was ending, and so he went, and he found a better plan for the future. Here's why he's so smart. Think of a couple of things. By giving generously to these people. Because, by the way, the story could have just gone, oh, he realizes he's getting fired. He goes to these people. It could have said, then he takes as much as they could possibly give him. Maybe he even raises the amount that they owe, takes it, sells it all, and runs away with the money. That could have been the story. And he could have gone, the guy gets away with the money. And now he's saved him enough money to get him through the next phase. But he doesn't. Why is he such a, 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 a rascal, such a shrewd rascal? By giving generously to these people, he's done three things. One, he's benefited the clients by giving them a deal. So not just himself, but he's given them a benefit. So he didn't go in and say, hey, just, you know, you owe 800 gallons. Well, give me 1,000 gallons. The price has gone up. And then they're upset, and then they don't have a good relationship. Uh, And maybe he gets it, maybe he doesn't, runs away. But he's actually benefited them. So they're happy. And actually, in this culture, he would have been counting on the principle of reciprocity. Would have been very important in business. And even today, a lot of circles, it would be too. Somebody gives you a great deal like this, and you would be thinking... If one day you see them in a hard spot, you would go, that's somebody I'm duty-bound to help out. Remember when they gave me such a good deal? Remember they let us off the hook of 400 gallons of olive oil? Well, yeah, of course we're going to be there for them. So he's benefited them. He's also, and this is real smart, he's benefited his employer by making him look generous. So now his clients and the clients of his boss are going to go, wow, this sales guy did a great job, but he must have convinced his boss to be so generous. That's who I owe the the olive oil or the wheat to. Anyway, at the end of the day, this guy must be so generous, this this boss, this wealthy man. I love doing business with him. Look, look, Look at what he's willing to give me. Of course, this is a business relationship that I want to keep. And then he's benefited himself by procuring friends that will want to show him generosity. So again, you've got the clients who are saying, wow, this sales guy's amazing, this manager, he's so good, I'd love to help him out if I could in the future. You've got the boss, who now he's got great business relationships with other people, and by the way, even if he's upset about it, think about this, again, if the guy, if the managers went and took all the stuff, sold it, and ran away, what's the boss going to do? Well, he's going to come after him. He's going to hunt him down. He's going to tell the people that owe him money, hey, I had a dishonest manager. He stole from me. He ran away. Nobody's going to want to do business with him. Nobody's ever going to want to hire him again. Then everybody's upset with everybody, and then he's on the run. He's always got to worry about who's coming after me. But now, by doing this, by, by, by giving such a benefit to the clients and improving the relationship with his boss, the boss, his hands are kind of tied. He's not going to go to the, the people who owed him money and say, no, actually, I need the other 400 gallons. And he's not going to chase the guy and make a big stink about it to look stupid. Instead, he's he's just gone, I actually have a benefit here because these people have made me look like a real generous business person. So then three, this manager has benefited himself by procuring friends that will want to show him generosity, but he's not on the run. Everybody kind of loves him. He's a shrewd rascal, isn't he? I love that. It's an interesting parable because then you go, what's Jesus trying to teach us here? Should we be scamming our bosses? (laughs) Should we be skimming off the top? Should we be giving away other people's stuff? Should we be dishonest? It's a bit of a head scratcher, but of course not. And Jesus is trying to get us to lean in. This is part of the secrets of the kingdom. This, what, what can we learn about this? What is going on? Verse eight says, the rich man, sorry, let's go down to verse nine. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal 
home. Isn't that interesting? Here's Jesus' point. So when you interpret a parable, by the way, you're not supposed to pick apart every little part and go, um, you know, it's all applicable. He's dishonest. We should be dishonest. Uh, He stole from his boss. We should steal from our boss. No, no, no. You're supposed to look for kind of the one uh, big point that the story is pointing to. So here's the lesson we're told. Use your worldly resources to benefit others to make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. Your worldly resources, which sometimes a phrase like that in the scriptures, it could bring a connotation of unrighteous things or deceitfulness. Sometimes it's just treasure, riches, resources, just stuff that you have, the, the basic stuff that you have. And Jesus is saying, man, some people, they're so good with worldly resources. They're smart. They're shrewd. They know how to make deals. We should be shrewd too. But here's the lesson. One day, you're going to get into a spot. Maybe you're already there. Many of us have been there where money's not going to solve your problem. And where having more isn't going to be the real thing that you want. And that you need a a better resource and a deeper resource. And Jesus is saying, what if you used your worldly resources? What if you just looked around and said, this is what I have around me to benefit others and to make friends, to build real good friendship. Wasn't the guy dishonest with his master's money? Yeah, maybe. We don't know all the details. Of course, he did stuff that we wouldn't do. But here's the point. Friendships are more valuable than finances. Friendships, real, deep, meaningful relationships with people. As we move through life, we will find are far more valuable than finances. And that's what Jesus is saying in this parable. He's saying this guy realized his money was running out and his time in business was running out. His money-making business, he was getting out of it. He needed to get into the relationship-building business because that was going to be a resource that was far more precious in his life. And I know, I know there are many of us, and maybe you haven't got here, but many of us, you've been through seasons in life where you realize perhaps, man, I'm in a spot in life and what I need most right now, whether you had it or whether you didn't have it, the resource I need most right now is not finances. And oftentimes we feel like it is. We feel like the whole, our whole world is around money. I need more money. I got to save more. I got to invest more. I got to spend more. I got to have a bigger income. That's going to solve all my problems. Sometimes all of our time, all of our attention, all of our schedule are devoted to working and working and to building up these things, but there will come a time if it hasn't already where all of a sudden you realize the resource I need most now is not financial, it's friendship. It's the people. I need someone who will welcome me into their homes. Someone who will be there for me. Flip side is to come across people who will be in that spot and they might need you. So, with that in mind in this story that Jesus tells us, which is supposed to shock you and say, um, wow, like, what, what's going on? What if, not that we were dishonest, but what if we were as shrewd as this manager when it comes to forging relationships, forging friendships? What if we had a plan? What if some of those questions when we do an evaluation around your, your relational fitness and you said, actually, I don't know. I don't know if I have that many close friends. Actually, I feel like I'm distant relationally from a lot of the people maybe I thought I was close with. I used to be. Actually, there's family relationships I wish were closer. Actually, I have friendships, but a lot of them are very surface. And if I get into a real spot, I don't know where we'd be if they'd show up for me, if I'd show up for them. So what can we do? What are some habits? There's this couple that have created counseling, uh, primarily for couples, but, but for everybody. And they've got a bunch of principles. They're called the Gottmans, and it's called the Gottman Method. It's pretty well known. I think it's 
Gottman.com, you can go find it. And they have in their different, uh, the way that they do therapy, different levels and different things you could do. But I was reading about this, heard about this, and uh, one of them really stood out to me. Um, and essentially say there's, there's two practices that are so powerful, and they start with this in marriage. And so if you're married or you're in a long-term relationship, this could be really helpful. But I think it's helpful for all of our relationships and friendships if we want to think through and maybe become a little bit more shrewd in how we look at our relationships and build them. So there's two habits that they talk about. And it starts with, the first one, is bids for connection. They say all of us are making bids for connection on an ongoing basis. Some of them are very direct. Some of them are very outright. They're easy to recognize. So somebody says to you, hey, uh, you want to go for coffee? That's a bid for connection. I'd like to get together with you. Can we talk a little bit? Um, some of them are, are bigger deals. A bid for connection might be asking someone on a date. It might be asking someone to marry you. There's different levels of, of, of how intense that can be. But it's basically asking someone, I want to be connected or I want to be deeper connected. How can we do that? I'm making a bid. I'm making some kind of request. And again, there's all kinds of levels. Some of them very, very overt. Somebody just asks you about it. In marriage, some of us need to tune in a little bit closer to those bids of connection and realize what they are for what they are. So your spouse comes in from a long day at work, and they go, wow, what a day. That's a bid for connection. Some of you need to know that. That's a bid for connection. They're saying, I want to connect with you on something. Or you're sitting on the couch, maybe you're on your phones, maybe you're watching TV. This one's a little bit more subtle. But again, I know there's some of you out there, you need to hear this, so you're welcome. I'm going to tell you. You're sitting there, and the person you love is sitting on the other end of the couch. Maybe you're watching your favorite program, whatever it is. Maybe you're both you're watching little videos on your phones, and all of a sudden you hear, <sighs> that's a bid for connection. It is. Okay, now you know, no excuse. So you go home tonight, and you hear, Okay, so first thing, we all have an opportunity to make bids for connection. This is a little bit vulnerable, right? In some of the examples you see, like asking someone out on a date. Well, there's some vulnerability because you can offer a bid for connection. You don't know if that other person's in a place to receive that or to respond to it. You don't know what they'll say. Maybe they don't have time. Maybe they're not interested. Maybe a bid for connection for some of us is, is with friends that we already have just to go a little bit deeper. We always talk about weather and sports and work. But how's your marriage? A little bid for connection. You want to go a little bit deeper? How's your mental health? Just prying questions. Might be little bids of question. Just to see, hey, are you willing to go there with me? It might be asking someone that you're a close friend to, to say, hey, do you think we could make when we get together just a little bit more intentional, a little bit more regular? I'd love to have a deeper friendship, talk about some things that are deeper. And in our culture, some of those things are really hard. You go, I don't know if I'd ever ask somebody that. That seems well forward. A bid for connection. If we don't ask for it, if we don't pursue it, if we don't take steps, we never get there. If we have no plan for deeper relationships, guess what? It's kind of like your financial life. If you have no plan, you're probably not going to end up with a whole bunch of money. Part of the point of the story. Some of us even have financial plans. Do we have a relationship plans? Are we willing to make some bids for connection? And then there's some responses. So the Gottmans would say, if there's a bid for connection, there's at least three types of responses that are possible. 
that you might give. And if you have a bid for a connection to someone else, you have to anticipate that they could do any of these things and be kind of okay with it. But depending on where your relationship is at, you might hope for one more than the other. So something to think about because you will get bids for connection within your family, friends, even today, people will be bidding for your connection. I know you can't say yes to all of them. I know we all have schedules and all the rest of it. My point is, will you be more intentional about how you bid for connection and how you respond to those bids for connections? Decide which ones are really important for you. So here's three different types of responses. One, you can turn away. It's just kind of neutral. Maybe ignore it. Someone says, can we go to coffee? And you sort of blow it off and say, yeah, maybe sometime, but you don't actually make an appointment. You're sitting on the couch and someone goes, and you just kind of keep watching TV, keep looking at your phone, sort of neutral, but you turn away from them. Secondly, you could turn against them. So this is where you kind of outright, you could reject the invitation, you could walk away from a conversation, you could say, no, I'm too busy. Someone could do the, and you could say, honey, can you be quiet? I'm trying to watch TV here. And you've rejected that bid for connection. Don't do that. Do not do that. And then, and this is where I want you to think about, when do you need to turn towards? And you turn off the TV and you look them in the eyes. You say, hey, what are you thinking? How's it going? What are you feeling? Hey, I heard the big sigh. I noticed that was a bid for connection. What do you want to talk about? Coffee? I'd love to go for coffee. Are you free on Wednesday? Let's go. Hey, a little deeper, more meaningful conversation. Yeah, I think, I think we're at a spot in our friendship where we should definitely go deeper. And all I want to say to you today is perhaps it's time for us to, as Jesus teaches us, not to just kind of set on autopilot and say, wow, I really wish I had some deep friendships, but actually to build a plan. Where do you need to offer a bid for connection? Maybe you need to take, uh, to take the lead on that, take the initiative to go to someone. Maybe that's threatening. You don't know how they're going to respond. Maybe they're going to reject it. I don't know. But maybe you need to do that, say, in this season of life. This is important. Because I believe that the things that God, the gifts that God wants to give us, more of them than, than others, he gives to us through community and relationship. That's where we get it. That more than the things, the gifts that we experience on our own that God gives us, we are given gifts in relationship. If you're going to make a bid for connection, I've said this from the front before, I'll say it one more time, one caveat, I trust you, I'm going to leave it to you. When you make those bids of connection, don't be weird. (laughs) Don't level jump too much, one step at a time, one step at a time. Can we get married? Well, we just met. Let's maybe go for, (laughs) let's maybe go for coffee. Just don't be weird. You don't have to be weird. But put yourself out there. Take one step, just one Step, bid for a connection where you think maybe there's a friendship that would grow into something deeper. Maybe this could grow into a, maybe it's, it's approaching someone that you're asking to be a mentor for you. Maybe it's something deeper in your, your marriage, your relationships. And then decide where do you need to turn toward? Not turn away, not turn against, but I need to turn towards people. I need to accept some of those bids of connection. Maybe this is God uh, just showing me a relationship to say, yes, this is a reconnection I need to make. Yes, this is an investment I need to make. Because what if? As Jesus teaches this powerful principle, one day there's going to come a time where what you need is not financial, but it's friendship. What if the same way we grow our finances with compound interest or other ways, what if the same is true relationally? That those little bids of connection, you know, it didn't seem like much. We just had a coffee. It didn't seem like much. We just decided we were going to talk deeper about uh, our faith with each other. Or we're going to make it regular. 
What if those things where you go, oh, it was just one coffee, it was just one conversation, but then it was another one and another one. And what if in 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, we looked around and said, wow, I am relationally rich, so wealthy. And when I need those resources, they're there for me. I think that's what Jesus is teaching us. Today in a minute, uh, Mark's going to come up and he's going to talk a little bit about our life groups that we're launching here in October. And for us, being a little vulnerable here, this is our bid for connection. So if some of us come together, what are you going to do in those life groups? Read scripture? 100%. Pray together? Yes, definitely. Do service projects together? I hope so. A whole bunch of stuff. But the point is we're going to do it together. We're going to bid for those connections. Hopefully we're going to turn in and we're going to accept some of those bids, receive them and say, yes, this is my circle. This is where I need to invest in. And just week after week to show up, make the investments and let the compound interest grow. Heavenly Father, I pray for people today who perhaps are just, they're listening to this and wishing, longing for those kind of friendships. And I pray that in a church community like ours, um, those opportunities would be present that they'd be ones that we invest in and that we take, that when we're in need, we would find people who care for us. And when we see people in need, we would take the initiative, go and care for them. I pray that we would be the kind of people who refuse to try and live out our faith and live our lives alone and on our own. And I pray that people who are so desperate and longing for those connections uh, might find them here in life groups and uh, in service uh, positions, whether they're serving in, in different areas. But, but God, that we would be the kind of people that would realize our money's only going to go so far, but our relationships are eternal. And we thank you that you've showed us that so richly in Jesus that he came for us to come up close, to be in relationship and to make us rich. In Christ's name, amen.